This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. In one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Ben Winters, author of the novel Golden State. And we also understand intuitively when a character has been hurt or is grieving that they have somewhere to go, that they need something, and that the story, which is what all good stories do, is they're going to provide a journey toward the satisfaction of that need in some way. We'll be back with Ben Winters after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. 
and it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Ben Winters, author of the novels The Quiet Boy, Golden State, The New York Times bestselling Underground Airlines, The Last Policeman and its two sequels, the horror novel Bedbugs, and several works for young readers, among others. Winters has won the Edgar Award for Mystery Writing, the Philip K. Dick Award in Science Fiction, the Sidewise Award for Alternate History, and France's Grand Prix Le Imaginaire. He also writes for film and television and was a producer on the FX show Legion. He lives in Los Angeles with his family. This interview was recorded right before the 2020 election and was conducted as part of the 2020 Miami Book Fair. We began the interview with Ben Winters summarizing his novel, Golden State. Basically, it is a detective novel that takes place in an alternate version of reality in a, in a place called the Golden State um, that is and is not California, but is a, world, a country in which it is illegal to lie. And um, the, the sort of primary goal of uh, the primary responsibility of every citizen and the, the paramount responsibility of law enforcement is to make sure that everybody tells the truth all the time. Uh, my hero uh, is a guy named Laszlo Radisek, who is a uh, he's a special kind of law enforcement official called a speculator um, who is allowed to uh, bend the truth to tell stories in the interest of trying to find out who did a crime um, and. There is, he may or may not have a sort of supernatural ability to, um, to detect when people are not telling the truth. Um, it is a, so hopefully the book offers the, um, the sort of satisfactions of a thriller, right? The kind of genre satisfactions of a, liter of a thriller, but um, it's also very much about our current age of um, alternative facts and mis and disinformation and how we've sort of built a society in which uh, it's very, very increasingly difficult to um, to rely on what we hear and read. So, right. And one of the things that's interesting, an interesting characteristic of this world that you built and the Golden State, is that it is so militant about telling the truth that it swings to a state where people are in fear, where where you are being watched all the time, where you are being recorded everywhere. So one might think that this sort of swing against the world where everyone was lying, that if they're telling the truth, it would provide more freedom, but that isn't necessarily the case. 
So that's, I mean, thank you. I think that's really interesting. And that was, in, that was in part, in part the, the goal of the book. That was the interesting thing to me about it. Like there's this pendulum swing. We can be outraged as we should be, I think, by political lying and by the, um, the inherent fascism of asking people to accept things that are not true as true. And I mean, obviously this has been in the zeitgeist for a little while now. Um, but at the same time, we have to be aware of anyone insisting that there are certain things you can and can't say um, and sort of policing our ability to express ourselves. So I was interested in the whole scope of issues here, the whole sort of range of ideas here between like, uh, on the one hand, alternate facts and the idea that everyone is entitled to their own version of the truth and how dangerous that is. And on the other hand, the idea of a state telling us what we can and can't say and what is and is not true. Like, I'm really interested in, on the one hand, Twitter, for example, social media is amazing because everybody can have their say about everything all the time. And like, that though can become very poisonous and very toxic. And it's very difficult sometimes to sort out what we should be paying attention to and what is real. And it makes you sort of hearken uh, for the good old days, quote unquote. Where it's like, well, you just turn on the TV. There was, you know, Walter Cronkite was there. He told you what was true and what wasn't true. And that was it. You didn't have to sort through all this muck. Uh, but on the other hand, that was one old white guy reading you and telling you what was true. And like, there's a danger in that too. So. I don't know. It's it's not simple. It's complicated. And I think in the complicatedness, in the in the complication of it, it is rich sort of literary territory. What instigated this? What what were you <laughs> seeing in the world that said, I want to translate these feelings into this book? Well, I will tell you, it's actually really interesting because, well, to me, I had made a deal with Mulholland, my publisher, Little Brown. Uh, Mulholland is the sort of crime thriller imprint of Little Brown um, uh, to do a two book deal, right? It was a two book deal. And I had the first book, we already knew what it was going to be. Uh, it was a uh, legal thriller science fiction thing uh, about a pair of families. And I had started it and I was sort of well, well, I had started it, let's say. Uh, and then, I don't know if you remember this, in November of 2016, there was a presidential election with a surprising result and sort of I I think like a lot of artists, I was sort of swamped by that fact. It was a shocking result. It was a huge deal, a sort of emotionally, intellectually, artistically. I felt like it was, I wanted to do something about that, to write about it. But this very specific idea for this book came after the, on the inauguration, on January 20th, 2017. And then the day after that, when they came out and announced that the crowd at that inauguration, it had been the biggest crowd of any inauguration ever. And we all watched it. We knew it wasn't true. And yet the insistence on that, and then they, there were supporters of the president who they would show them two photographs. Well, here was President Obama's inauguration. Here's President Trump's inauguration. In which of these photographs do you see more people? And they would trust what they had been told by the political leadership above the evidence of their own eyes. I was like, that is bonkers. That to me was a really interesting event in political history, right? Like, and certainly in the history of this country, although students of totalitarianism and dictatorships and um, they, uh, they will tell you that this is part and parcel, right? The insistence, and it's, it's in Orwell, right? Like two and two is five. That is the ending of that book. The, the, the insisting that the individual citizen believe something that they know or they have to understand isn't true. So that's where the book came from.
that's where I started thinking about this stuff. But I didn't want to do a book that was just another iteration of how bad it is to live with untruth. I was like, let's investigate what it would be like to live with uh, enforced truth, with the opposite of that. What's interesting is when you were describing that, you use the word investigate, and you are drawn towards these sort of maybe investigative books where your characters might be policemen or in some ways they're they're looking into things and they're also maybe futuristic sort of sci-fi speculative yeah so i'm wondering about your sensibility that brought you to that genre or to express your artistic self in that way i mean who knows right first of all the answer is who the hell knows like you know we are who we are like i i think um for me the sort of origin of my taste as a writer, I think, was with the book that I did called The Last Policeman, which was not my first novel, but was the first one that I think, I guess, fully expressed who I am as a writer, if that makes any sense. Like, I pitched the book, I had always wanted to write a murder mystery. And I was like, how can I do a murder mystery that is like one we've never seen before? And I was like, well, what if the world is going to end, right? So the theme of that, the story of that book is that there's an asteroid on the way to destroy all life on Earth. My hero is nevertheless trying to solve this murder. So the whole of society is breaking down. Everybody's running around like crazy. Civilization is falling apart. This guy wants to solve a crime no matter what. And so I realized, so the premise was like, okay, I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. That'll make a cool book. That'll be a kind of mystery we haven't seen before. And then I, as I was writing it, I realized, oh, this is actually about death. This is about the fact that we're all going to die one day. There's an asteroid coming for us of one sort or another, how do we nevertheless go on? Why, how, why do we make the decisions we make? Like, how is it that we care about anything? And so I sort of stumbled on this, like, oh, you can use this, this sort of genre structure, this sort of familiar and sturdy investigative um, uh, uh, map, you know, this kind of book, you can use it to think and talk about things that are sort of deeply meaningful or interesting, right? So. I guess the book got better in that way. To my, in my opinion, it's like, that's what deepened it. That one made it, made it worth writing and worth reading. Like, oh, it's not, it's a cool mystery story. And I, the mystery works. It's the beginning, middle, and end. We find out who did it. But also it's about what it means to be a person and what it means to be in a civilization and what we owe to one another. So when I finished the trilogy, I was like, oh, now I feel like I have this, like this superpower, this idea, this way of working. Like I'm going to use these traditions of crime fiction and do weird supernatural things with them as a way of thinking about real life. And so the book that I did after the trilogy was Underground Airlines, which was all about systemic racism in America and the ways that slavery has sort of poisoned American history and, and how the legacy of slavery is still with us now. And I was like, well, I'm going to write a thriller. It's a fugitive novel. It's about a manhunt, but it's this very dark premise in which like slavery never ended in the United States. And it was like, I call it like an alternate history that's not alternate enough. Like part of the, the brutal thing about that book is the ways in which the America I create in the book is too much like the one we still live in, where black people are heavily policed and they, but again, it's, it's a mystery, right? So that it has the, 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 the structure and the exterior shell of a very familiar thing. It's a manhunt novel, it's a fugitive story, but just under the surface, it's about something that matters in this deep way. And so the same with Golden State, again, as we've talked about, like that's, I guess that's just how I got there. When you're describing that, it makes me think that you're kind of doing two two things at once. I mean, you're doing many things at once. That that's what writers do. But like for this book, you're looking at truth and when people don't tell the truth and ramifications of that. But you're also 
doing a, a ton of world building. So you're creating yeah. this world where you can talk about these things in a different way. So for instance, in this book, your main character, Laszlo, who you mentioned, he's in a speculation service. So he has maybe the second sense where he goes and when people lie, he sort of investigates or turns them in. You have death collectors, you have this thing called capture where there's cameras everywhere. They wear certain things. So you are world building. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that pro that process of how you world build. Yeah, I love that. I, I love world building. I think it's the funniest term like of literary art. It's so arrogant. It's like, yes, I'm just world building this afternoon. Uh, but like, I guess just the once you have the basic premise or the idea of the story that's going to be set in some sort of either uh, you know, alternate version of our reality or an entirely invented reality, it's going to require you as you go to figure out how that world works and what it looks like and what it feels like. And I think that the that's really the fun part. It's one to me, it's one of the most fun parts of writing because you can't be wrong. You know what I mean? Like once you've created, I've created the golden state and all of its rules are up to me, then there's no, it's like building a, you're building something and you might choose to do uh, you know, red shutters instead of green shutters, but there's no wrong answer. It's just, you want to be, to me, like, it's in the terminology, the naming of things like death collectors and the night book and like all of these sort of different, very specific names and the, the names we give to the laws and the rules. Like I remember in Last Policeman, there's a whole like Congress passes an emergency piece of legislation to govern how we're going to react in the face of the oncoming asteroid. And like coming up with those sorts of things, like, it just makes the reader feel like, oh, this is a, a fully imagined reality. And they don't have to stop and go, I wonder, like, that feels sort of loose and squishy. Like, the more specific you can make it, the more detailed you can make it. But then the trick is that the characters, in the same way that you or I don't stop every time we hear the term DHS or every time, like, we hear the phrase library card and go, what is that again? Oh, I remember. It's like, it's just like these little words and phrases are part and parcel of the characters' lives. So you have to do the magic trick of incorporating the words into the scenes and letting the reader understand by context what they mean, but not having the characters think to themselves, oh yes, I thought to myself, then a night book, it's this and this and this and this, because they already know. They don't stop and think about it. So I think that's a really fun balancing act. And it's one of the ways that uh, uh, you can make the world feel so real because it's almost like the, the more weird and strange the world is that you're building, the harder you have to work to make sure the reader feels like it's absolutely real and they're absolutely grounded and that they're really living in this reality. When you're in that ideation phase, do you take notes and have a separate maybe Bible or something about this or is it more organic that when you write- You would think. That would be a smart thing to do. I always say I'm going to, but like, it's hard. I And I find that there's never a time in the writing process, for me at least, where I stop and go, okay, I'm going to write down all the rules of this world and I'm going to make a glossary of the world. And I'm going to like, I don't know who does it. Maybe somebody does. I don't know. Like I could see George R.R. R. Martin doing that. Like I've never been able to like stop. It's always just like the forward process of writing the narrative. And when you come to a place where it's like, oh, my character needs to go to the archives. Now I'm going to imagine what the archives look like. And now I'm going to imagine what words they use to describe the things there. Um, and I should, one should keep uh, all that information in one collated place, but I never do. It's always just a big mess. And I'm always like trying to go back and remember where, what I called something, but I never do. So it's always a big, crazy mess. I, I feel like the intention with every book is I'm going to do a better job on the process this time and keep track of it all and make sure it's like a clean process. And the process is always a giant mess. 
and then you cleaned it up furiously in the end. So yes. the narrative involves Laszlo Ratzik, and we yeah. open with him. He's experienced a lot of loss. His brother had a very like almost preternatural ability to tell lies at the very highest level. He's teamed up with a new partner, a young woman, Asa Page, who's just learning. And he's, he's salty and bitter and sad, but also still has a part of him that's open and can recognize. He's, he's very um, insightful about who he is. And yeah. he is beginning with this loss and they go to investigate what turns out to be a death of a man who fell off the roof. And they're just kind of there. And what they do is kind of see like, were there any lies involved with this? And yeah. at first they know, but as they dig deeper, they find that there was some anomalies there. So yep. can you talk a little bit more about the storyline and what you wanted to include there? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's an excellent setup. And like, again, you can see that I'm, what I'm trying to do is use what are going to feel like kind of classic structures or almost tropes of mystery fiction, right? The sort of grizzled detective who has suffered loss and is soldiering on any way, who is then paired with a young, enthusiastic partner who wants to learn from him, but he doesn't want a teacher. These are all things that we've seen before. And I'm trying to recontextualize them by putting them in this strange world where what they're trying to investigate is whether anyone's told any lies, whether there's anything here that is an untruth. And at first, Laszlo is like, why do I care about this? This guy fell off a roof and he died. And this one tiny anomaly in this situation uh, is gonna lead him into a sort of a series of deeper and deeper lies that ultimately are gonna shake the whole sort of foundation of his understanding of the world. And like, what I wanted to get into is the difference between like a small lie, you know, if I tell you it's Tuesday and it's actually Wednesday, who cares, but it is a lie versus like the entirety of the civilization, the golden state that he lives in is based on one idea. And he's gonna find out that, what if it all isn't true? What if there's like a lie right at the core of reality? What does that do to a person? How does that sort of tear you apart? Um, so having all, all of which is to say that for that story arc to work, he has to begin as the most committed and dogged believer in the Golden State. He starts this story as a total true believer in the calling of the Golden State, in the meaning of it. Truth is the absolute most important thing. And the novel is going to start to test him more and more and more in like, do you really believe that? Is that is truth the most important thing? Are there things that are more important than that? What about love? What about friendship? What about family? Like, so it's about, it becomes a novel about sort of balancing different ideals and values. And like, what do you do if like the things you thought you care about were never true? Well, it's interesting too, because of what we're living through in reality right now, starting with the inauguration and four years later, and you think this sounds like a good idea. You think like living in a world without lies and where it's truth is sounds really great, idea. right? Yeah. It sounds good. But then when you realize it, it's not only is it like a little bit boring because like think about how telling jokes maybe, and they do have a certain stipulation for jokes and they have a stipulations yeah. a little bit for sarcasm. But you think about either like a white lie when it's just not worth it to tell someone their dress is ugly versus, you know, as you go deeper and deeper, that one thing this became really about for me is storytelling because yeah. they can't have novels. They can't have 
fiction. Yeah. Novel means something very different. I sort of redefined the word novel in the book to me. They're like sagas. They're true. They're always have to be absolutely true stories about the golden state itself. So it's re, re, reaffirming the, the story of the golden state, but a novel always, every word of it has to be true. And then one of the things that is a startling thing that happens in the book is they find a work of fiction buried inside the golden state and it like blows Laszlo's mind. Here's this book that is not a true story. How can that be? And like, I enjoyed writing the passage in the book where I describe what it feels like to read fiction for the first time. And it's like this sort of mind blowing earth shattering event for him to encounter a long moving and emotional journey that isn't true. Um, which is like how we all feel when you read a good book. It's like startling how powerful it can be, you know, and it's a truth. It's a kind of truth. And that's sort of something that's really interesting to me is like, what does that mean to say that a book felt true, even though we know it isn't true? A person, an individual, a human being created these characters and created this story. How can it be true? But it is true, like because it has a truth to tell us about ourselves or a truth to tell us about life. And like, that's a really beautiful thing, you know? Right. I, I was thinking about that. There was no room for, for allegory. There was no yeah. room even for a certain sort of philosophy to look at metaphor, to look at how we are so shaped, you know, you're a writer. I'm, I'm assuming that when you're a kid, you were shaped by books. Like look at the books on the shelf of your child. Like they yeah. teach you about empathy and they teach you about how to care about someone. And through an individual person in a story, we open up the whole world. It makes us better people. And they didn't have that. Totally. totally. And so what does that mean? Like, like, how do you find those things if not in fiction? So I guess it's funny, like I haven't really thought about it this way, Mitzi, but it's like the book in a way is a, like it's a book about books. It's a book about fiction. It's a book about the power of storytelling and like what kind of society do we have when all the stories are true? What is left to us? Like how do we think about the world without stories? Yeah, and I was thinking about them because I felt like one of the things that was also missing and it's like a small distinction, but it's really important was compassion. So I felt like Laszlo, when he went and he was with people who had told a small lie and maybe it was to preserve their family, that he he kind of did have empathy for them, but I did not feel like there was compassion for others. And I'm wondering yeah. if what your comment on that would be. No, that's actually really interesting. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I thought about it exactly in those terms. In this world, if you can't, if no one can tell lies and if everyone is always on guard for them, it, it adds a sort of stiltedness or a brittleness to human interaction. It's almost like when you think about it, like lying or social lying or the ability to like soften our opinions by salting them with maybe small untruths. It's like a social lubricant. It allows us to, to show each other compassion in these small ways that the golden state is robbed of that. Um, and what I try to do in the book is get to a place at the end where the characters, or Laszlo at least, recognizes some of that value um, and tries to sort of feel his way toward what's the intermediate place between absolutely no lies and the world that I'm afraid that we're starting to get to now in our real world of this like cavalcade of untruths and like people getting swept away by things like QAnon or whatever, where it's like, it becomes so easy to believe any crazy old thing because we've become so, we've lost our grounding. So like, what is the, what is the middle ground? How do we find a society that is like appropriately open to fiction and to expressions of like, to exaggeration and to like small lies that are okay without slipping into this morass, you know? Yeah, I mean, at times it kind of reminded me of East Berlin because 
you were always watched and that was thrown back. I mean, they watched, you know, on TV, they watched like, like real reality TV, like stuff, yeah. people on the streets that were themed by maybe surprise proposals or people searching for lost things. Yeah, that was one of my favorite little pieces of world building is like, just if everything is always being recorded, then what is television? Well, it's just you watching some random person do something down the street or on the other side of town. So like Laszlo goes home when he flips through the channels and it's just stuff that is happening right now. And it might be a themed channel, like people waiting at red lights or like misunderstandings at work. And like, you just watch that for a while. Yeah, you sort of stumble into those moments of world building, which sort of goes back to what we were saying before. Like I wouldn't have ever thought to myself, well, I need to create that, except that I knew I wanted a moment of Laszlo killing time watching TV, but then you have to go, well, then what's on TV? Like in this world, what, so you have to answer that question for yourself. And that's how the world slowly expands. We talked about in the very beginning that Laszlo has lost, he lost his brother, he's divorced. And I'm wondering why you think that loss might be important. I know you were talking about detective stories, but what, what do you think that offers a, a character to have loss? Well, I mean, the very basic reason I think it makes a character, I hate the word relatable, but I think it makes a character call out to us because most of us have had experienced some loss and it's something that is we can understand. And it's a way for us to feel love for a character or empathy for a character, even when some of the decisions they make or the way that they hold themselves might be um, not ideal, you know? Like, and we also understand intuitively when a character has been hurt or is grieving that they have somewhere to go, that they need something. And that the story, which is what all good stories do, is they're gonna provide a journey toward a satisfaction of that need in some way, usually in a surprising way. You know, they might think they need one thing, but what they really need is something else and we're gonna take them there. So I think in one way or another, at the beginning of a journey, the story, a protagonist is generally not whole in some way. And it doesn't have to be they've experienced the loss of a brother or a spouse or something, but they're just missing something, something isn't there. Um, and, and we're gonna find a way in the storytelling to, to either take them to that thing or to take them to a place where they understand that that's not what they need. They need something else. Do you want to talk a little bit about Asa, who is his young colleague who came in very astute, very smart. He doesn't like her at first and she ends up being a very interesting force in the book. Yeah. She's a tough character to talk about without spoiling too much, but she is, she's, um, she, she, looks up to him and there's always that funny relationship in these kinds of um in this story uh and in these kinds of stories where he wants nothing to do with her he has no interest he feels like he has been saddled with her and he doesn't think he's the kind of person who has anything to teach and she sort of insists on learning from him right she insists on telling him that he is worth something that he has something to teach and so there's a tenderness that grows between them hopefully that is satisfying and and pleasing and then the relationship goes in some different directions that are kind of cool and interesting i hope too um for plot reasons i like characters like that too and like she wants to be like him and he doesn't think that anyone should be like him and so that dynamic i think it is it adds to our sense of him and it makes us root for her because she is helping him to become what he he ought to be they both share this quality and it goes back because I have so many notes about this that this book what you mentioned it's so much about storytelling and that they every time that you piece together a mystery it's a hunger 
for a story. Yeah, yeah, that's totally true. And, and so they both had it, and so they were really reaching towards that. And I think the question came in because you're talking so much about people not lying and telling the truth, but what is reality? They were very based on facts. Like they would say to say to each other, like 12 times 12 is 144. And yeah. a, yeah. a Sosley's triangle has all the same angles or whatever. Yeah. They, they had to, they, a lot of times they had to ground their truth in something that probably was like to make sure that they didn't have a tell, like if they were lying or just yeah. was, like almost a secret handshake in this world. So it's almost like the way that people say, hey, what's up? How you doing? Like you're, you don't actually ask me how you doing, but in this world, it's like you see somebody, go, two plus two is four, and they go, you know, the sun comes up in the morning. It's like, we, we, it's like a way of quickly saying, we both live in the same objective reality. Yes, we both live in the same objective reality. Like it's that reaffirmation constantly of truth. So that's, again, it's a piece of world building. It's like, and people, every, like when the clock strikes 12, everybody stops on the street and says, it is 12 o'clock. It's 12 o'clock. We all are in agreement about every basic aspect because in our world, when we start to, it's like we're drifting into different worlds. So it's almost as if in the golden state, they're trying to stay in the same world by constantly exchanging these small pieces of truth. But what is truth versus reality? Truth and fact, two plus two is four. But for some people, reality today could be QAnon. For some people, right. reality might be God. For others, it's going running. For some, it's brownies. You know, when you yeah. talk about like maybe yeah. your philosophical things that you believe in and how you find that. And I'm wondering kind of what maybe writing this brought out for you to think about. I mean, it's a wonderful question. And like, it gets very quickly into sort of deep philosophical weeds, you know, questions of epistemology and like, what is truth? And like all the things that we know, we only know because ultimately we've been told them by other people. Like, I believe that the world is round and that the moon, uh, you know, orbits the earth and the earth orbits the sun. But why do I really believe that? Well, I believe it because I've been told it by people who are smarter than I am. And it's never really been proven to me. I just trust that it has been proven by other people. So you get into these sort of levels of truth, like, and that's all really interesting. And like, you don't usually stop to think about it, except that it's like, because to live every day, you can't think about this stuff all the time. You have to just accept that two plus two is four and that the moon revolves around the earth and the earth around the sun. Because like, if you stop to think about everything and ask why you know that it's so, it's an unending chain of questions. So like at a certain level, we have to just accept certain things to be true and say, okay, well, that's reality. Truth is not as sturdy and steady as we like to think it is. Even those of us who are scornful of things like QAnon and conspiracy theories, like, well, obviously that's not true. Well, how do I know it's not true? Because I trust the experts. Well, why do I trust the experts? Well, because when I was growing up, I was taught to believe in science. Well, by whom? By someone who was taught to believe in science. Like all of these things are sort of fascinating to me as an artist. But then as a human being, you have to go, okay, but well, what level do I just go, I believe this, um, but not that. So did writing this change you in any way? Like, did you start off either believing one thing and end up somewhere else or just through the artistic process of exploring this ideas, would you say that you might've come out at the end different in some way? I think honestly, um, on some level, it made me more forgiving of people who might believe things that to me are so preposterously untrue. You know, like we started by talking about the, the, the supporters of the president and the crowd sizes. And like, it's like, oh, come on, that's just stupid. How can you be so dumb to believe that there are more people in this than in that? But like, I guess 
mass, you know, media culture and political leaders and stuff, they can really have, they exert an enormous influence on the ways that people believe things. And I think we are, it, it's at our peril that we just dismiss people who are political opponents or people with whom we disagree as being foolish or misled. Uh, or no, I mean, we have to like have empathy for the fact that with enough pressure and enough like signaling, any one of us could believe things that we right now think are not true, which is kind of scary, but it also I think offers a way for us to expand our empathy and um, and reach out to those with whom we disagree with more of a, um, a like a, a like a willingness to understand that like we have to persuade. We can't just be like, oh, you know, that's so dumb. Like truth is there, it, it can be messy and we have to like believe in what we believe and find ways to persuade without being dismissive, which is very hard. What's interesting though, and kind of funny and ironic about this novel is that for people who want to know truth, I mean, they look up words in the dictionary, they are very like by the book. They don't really know what happened in the world before. They know, know that there was a breakdown. And it felt to me almost like they all experienced a trauma, that this whole world was born out of trauma but they don't really know what the trauma is. Right, here's the thing. Because the way that the Golden State set is set up is that there is this book that tells of the origins of the Golden State, but most of it is redacted. You can't read it because it, we're not allowed to know it. And therefore it's, it doesn't, it is neither true nor untrue. It is simply an unknowable fact. And like they've accepted that as a category of knowledge, which again, this is getting to the weeds of epistemology, but like a category of knowledge that is neither known nor unknown and therefore it does not exist. So for all of that, they are insistent on truth as the ultimate value. The underlying truth of the golden state is not to be known or discussed. And I do sort of try to give the impression that there was some event in the past that required the building of this truth-based state. Um, and like, hopefully we are not in our reality in 2020 veering towards such an event. But like, you can imagine if there was some sort of terrible nuclear attack or, um, a, you know, a biochemical attack on the United States, people have learned to be, so many people have learned to be so distrustful of the media and of scientific experts and of the government, different people, that like, it might be hard to ever get a straight answer about what happened. And like, that to me is really, really sad and interesting that like, we don't, we no longer have a, a common, there's no, there's no more authoritative source from which we can believe the truth. So what happens if there's something really important that everybody needs to know? And like, we've gotten a taste for that right now with the coronavirus, the fact that so many people refuse to accept the medical um, establishments, uh, uh, you know, diagnosis and prognosis about how to handle this has led to a lot of unnecessary pain and suffering, which sucks. And like it is a direct result of our of the decay of truth, of the decay of belief in the truth. And you begin by this book on the very first page before you get into the narrative. You have it says part one, and you have a definition for future, and it's from their Golden State Publishing arm, which is like state published everything. Yeah, which state media, brings yeah. other questions. Can I read the definition? Sure. Yeah. So it says future, usually the future, the set of possible events which are neither happening nor have happened, but which may happen, including those possible events which will happen, but which are not yet distinguishable from the far greater group which will not. Nota bene, avoid where possible. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then I have a question. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of like that's so that's the official definition of the future is like you can't really talk about the future in detail because it's not true, right? In the Golden State, there, the future, we don't know what's going to happen. So it's best not to talk about it. It's best not to think about it. Um, so speculators are allowed to. Laszlo is allowed to because he is allowed to speculate. That's one of the things that speculators are allowed to do is tell stories about the future. But for most of us, the future is not a real thing. It doesn't exist, so it's not true. It's sort of like the past. We don't know exactly what happened, so we better not talk about it. So this is one of those things that once you start to think about what it really means to only tell the truth, it is actually quite limiting in terms of the way that we can live as human beings. And but just by the way, I really like using, I, I did an Underground Airlines too. The opening quote from Underground Airlines sounds like it comes from a real book, but I made it up. And it's a book that only exists within the alternate universe of that novel. Similarly, I was like, well, I need a quote to start the book. I'm just going to write one and pretend that it's from another book. It's very arrogant, but that's what I like to do. Well, I was wondering, and I wrote this note when I read Future, because that's you're starting off focusing on this. And we are talking today before November 3rd. And I so know. I was thinking about by the time this airs, it will be after November 3rd. So I'm just... I just, I don't know, this, this beginning of this book and this whole book itself made me think about how we're talking now, but when everybody sees it, it could be a different world. It will be a different world. One way or another, it's going to be a different world. I mean, the world is always different. And like, you know, people who, again, it's, the future's unknowable. People who study like whatever, there's like this whole th field of physics of the multiverse theory. And like, in fact, there are two, all, there are two futures out there. There's the Biden future and there's the Trump future. And we might, we don't know which one we're going to live in. And then the past is always collapsing behind us as all the possible futures crunch together. But the thing is that we don't know. I'm hopeful that by the time people are watching this, they'll be like, yay, it, it is kind of trippy. And so let's send psychic messages into the future uh, with the good calming vibes. I actually, like, since I was a little kid, whenever I've been experiencing something difficult, whether I'm in trouble at school or, or I don't know, or like worried about something, I try to like remember to when I get through it to send a psychic mass message back in time to my older self, to my younger self saying, it's going to be okay. Do you ever do that? Like, so like right now we can just remember to think to ourselves, okay, on November 4th or whenever the election is over, let's send messages back to ourselves now, reassuring ourselves that no matter what, it's going to be okay. You know? So that's what you have to do. I mean, it makes me think a lot about time. And I think in some sense, all books are about time. They are. That is totally true. Like a book is because you, a book is a beginning, middle and end, but it's also a physical object that exists as one fixed point in time. And also once you've read a book, you're not done with it because it keeps living on inside of you. And then you can go back and start it again, or you can pick it up and read a favorite passage from the middle. So even though it is this thing that tells a story, which is um, a linearity, which is a, a a beginning, middle, and end. It is not that. It is a physical fixed object that then once it's done, exists in time. It's a permanent thing in time. I mean, it's actually kind of amazing about books. They are stories which move, but which we carry with us permanently. And it's interesting because when you started this after the inauguration, you were one Ben. And now, and even when you finished it and it came out like a year ago, you were a, a, another Ben. And now yeah, you're and yet a third. Ben. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. Um, and once you start to think about stuff like that, it actually, I think it can be trippy and a little upsetting, but it also really expands your view of what it means to be a person. Like, yeah, and it's hard to even talk about. There's actually a great book I just read recently called um, Time Travel 
a history. I think that's what it's called. It's basically a survey. It's by James Glick, who's a science writer. And it's a sort of survey about time travel and literature, starting with H.G. Wells, but also going back from him about like the way that books are time machines and how books about time machines have changed the way that people think about time. It's really, really interesting. But yeah, I think about that all the time. Time travel is like, it might be called time travel a history, but it's really, it's really interesting. Well, one of the things that you do in your book that, you know, when you think about time, that might relate to this in a way where you're in this fictive dream with your main narrative, but you have these other interludes of different narratives. So you have a different font and it's almost as if they're directly addressing the reader. So you get someone else in the beginning, you're not sure who it is with an attestation and then a stipulation saying like, this is a novel, but it's true. And it was written for this reason. And so throughout it, you had these little interludes to either bring the reader up to pace or reveal something else. I'm wondering about your choice to do this as far as craft and writing it. Yeah, well, in terms of craft, I like I love the idea of sort of formal divisions where you interrupt the forward going narrative to stick something in to jar the reader and like, first of all, remind them that this book, The Golden State is this weird thing. It's not a normal book because it takes place in this other world. And I'm trying to kind of um, basically suggest to them that this is all true, right? And that it's a novel within a novel. I always love stuff like that. So it's a little bit of a meta game. And it also gives me as a writer an opportunity to switch back and forth between different voices, which is always a fun challenge. And I think keeps the reader on their toes a little bit. And it's just a mystery within the mystery, right? Because you're from the beginning, you're wondering, well, wait, what is this other book? How does it relate to the main story? When will the two things come together and how? So it's just a way of adding nuance, of adding a layer, both in terms of like, writing style in terms of storytelling and in terms of the audiences the almost visceral the physical feeling of reading the book of going back and forth between the different styles the different fonts like what is this thing um so i just i always dig stuff like that and do you do that while you're writing or is that like an do you do that after in terms of the main narrative this one i think that i wove them in as i was writing it may be that i wrote some of that stuff later and then contextualize and then put it in um, it's funny because in the book, my next book, which is going to come out in May, I did a whole thing like that, and then I decided to cut it. So there's a whole, almost like a whole another book that I wrote that was woven through the main book, and it just for various reasons it wasn't. It was a different thing. It was more of a dream rather than a book within a book, and it just never quite landed. And it broke my heart because I loved it, but I just I pulled the whole thing. But it, whatever. So I, I'm always interested in experimenting with sort of formal devices like that. And do you have any any tricks or is it just kind of channeled when you pick your characters' names? <laughs> uh, I wish I wish I had a good trick. I, I it, it always takes me a long time. I, I free, Laszlo actually came on really early. Asa, I changed a bunch of times. I often rename characters like 10 times over the course of a book. Not main characters usually, but side characters. I'm always fussing with because I'm like, ah, that isn't quite right. Like you want the name to feel exactly right. But but the definition of exactly right, you never know what it is. So there's always a lot of, I'm always fussing around with names. It kills me. I still, sometimes I'll read a book and be like, ah, that isn't the right name for that character still. I don't love that. This book was particularly challenging because, um, you know, on the one hand, it is a detective procedural. And so there's a certain like, kinds of names you want or like a tough feeling but at the same time it's an imagined universe so it's like 
it's like I never even got into the idea of like, well, wait a second, is, is Laszlo of like that that lame Laszlo Radisek, that would suggest a certain ethnic descent, a Central European, you know, uh, uh, heritage. But like, I never really get into the book. Well, it, uh, are, is this, it, it isn't, we don't know what it is. Is it America or not America? Where do these people come from? Like, what is the Golden State? So like, you don't want to, I didn't want to muddy the water. So there's no characters in the book named like Rosenberg or something, you know, names that are very deeply suggestive of certain American identities would have been a little distracting in a book like this. So there's sometimes there are questions like that too. Do you have a favorite all-time like literary character's name? Oh my God. Well, did you know that the name Wendy from Peter Pan, J.M. Barry made up that name? There, that he invented the name Wendy. That's the first no. time that name appears on the Yeah. So anybody you know named Wendy, that's where that comes from, which I, that kills me. I love that. Uh, there must be others. I mean, there's so many great names. I'll, I'll, I'll think of some after we hang up, I'm sure. Oh, I mean, Ripley from the Ripley story. The Talented Mr. Ripley is like my favorite book. And like that name's just exact. Thomas, like Ripley, fucking great. I love that character. That is an incredible uh, book. It is. At the, I would to any writer who wants to write a book of any kind, but particularly a work of crime or mystery fiction, the first chapter of The Talented Mr. Ripley is like, you can't beat it. It's amazing because you meet this character, you don't know who he is or what he wants, but he's immediately in peril. He's immediately, clearly he's some kind of con man. You don't know what kind of, but like he's running and like, why is he running? You're immediately like, oh, I'm so worried about this guy. And so she tricks us. She tricks us into having empathy for him. Even though he's a total psychopath, it's great. Totally masterful. So I'm wondering first, if you can read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer and then yes. tell us why you chose that. Okay, well, here's the thing. I have often said to people who ask who my favorite novelists are that a lot of my favorite novelists are songwriters. Um, like Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan, that is a novel. It is a cubist masterpiece short novel. Um, there's a writer named Craig Finn, who's a band called The Hold Steady, but he also has these solo albums and every song is a novel. This guy named John Darneal from the band called The Mountain Goats. He, he is actually also a novelist, but his songs are novels. Anyway, so I'm gonna read you this song, which is called The Heart of Saturday Night by Tom Waits. And like, this is one of my favorite pieces of writing of any kind. I can't, I'm not gonna sing. Well, you gassed her up behind the wheel with your arm around your sweet one in your Oldsmobile, barreling down the boulevard, you're looking for the heart of Saturday night. And you got paid on Friday and your pockets are jingling and you see the lights and you get all tingling cause you're cruising with a six and you're looking for the heart of Saturday night. Then you comb your hair, shave your face, trying to wave out every face. All the other days in the week, you know that this will be the Saturday you're reaching your peak. Stopping on the red, you're going on green, because tonight will be like nothing you've ever seen. And you're barreling down the boulevard, looking for the heart of Saturday night. Here's my favorite part. It's the crack of the, it's the, crack of the pool balls, neon buzzing, telephones ringing, it's your second cousin. And the barmaid is smiling from the corner of her eye, magic of the melancholy tear in her eye. Makes it kind of special down in the core, and you're dreaming of them Saturdays that came before. There's that grief, that loss, right? It's found oh. you stumbling, stumbling onto the heart of Saturday night. Like, so that to me has everything that I love in a character description and in like the sentence level. The, the crack of the pool balls, neon buzzing, telephones ringing, it's your second cousin. Like, that's what we try to do in songs is use detail to create sensory impression and a feeling of story. Like, telephones ringing, it's your second cousin. It's like, that is perfect. Because also, this isn't cell phones. The telephone's ringing at the bar. Like all of these things is like painting, painting, painting. So there you go. Do you remember when you first heard that song? No, only that Tom Waits was someone I had never been super into until I met my wife. And now we've been married for 16 years. And like, so it was when we were dating. So I was like, she was like, Tom Waits, you got to listen to Tom Waits. I was, so I got really into him at that time. And I was like, so it would have been around there. It's such an amazing song. 
can you read a passage you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft and then tell us about it. Yeah, I'm going to read. So this is literally going to be the first paragraph. And this is reading this off uh, an iPad here because it's the copy edit in process for my new book. I struggled a lot with introducing the main character here. This is one of the two main characters. And so this is Jay Shank, who is an ambulance chasing shyster with a heart of gold, basically. Okay. And this is like halfway through the first part of the book, the first chap, the first full chapter. And I just wanted to show him as he is at his happiest, which is about to go and try to, to find a, someone to represent. Shank in a hospital lobby was Shank in full. Chin angled up, chest thrust forward, ponytail dancing at his nape, marching forward like a man at the head of a parade. Schenck was an aficionado, aficionado of hospital lobbies, of their informational kiosks and layered odors and vast soaring atriums. How many times had he passed through the whoosh of automatic doors, strode along the speckled linoleum tiles and down the beige hallways, past the seascapes and the still lifes and the forgiving portraits of elderly philanthropists. He loved all the lobbies without prejudice or discrimination. He loved the slick modern lobbies with their ergonomic furniture and meditation gardens and minimalist sculptures. But just as fervently did he love the humble old school lobbies like this one at Valley Village with its dribbling water fountain and analog signage with its dreary little gift shop offering generic teddy bears and individual mylar balloons, each balloon tethered limply to its cardboard stick. And the people, as Schenck bounded through the lobby, his heart swelled with love for the hospital people. I, I, and the reason I say I struggled with that is because I kept rewriting it and rewriting it to fully describe what it's like to be in a hospital lobby, but to do it through the eyes of someone who truly is full of boundless enthusiasm for hospital lobbies. Where do you write? I write anywhere. I have become very good at just writing. I think having three kids and having a pretty busy life I, I've had to give up on the idea that you have your sort of safe, monkish space to which you can escape. And I've gotten good at just flipping open the laptop and jamming out, you know, 20 pages or no, 20 minutes, wherever I am. I think it's actually an important skill for writers to cultivate is the idea that like, you can't sit around, you're never going to get, you're never going to get that perfect day of writing where you just get to sort of lone, lounge and loaf and wait for the muse to strike. Like you got to just train yourself to just dive in whenever you can. So that's what I do. And I used to work in coffee shops a lot more, but lately I'm, well, obviously all of us now, but I, I, even the last few years, I've been pretty homebound. What do you do or where do you go to maybe get away from writing? Well, I like to run and now we have a puppy and the puppy, like we run every morning and it's a really nice routine. So I'll run like four or five miles with the dog every morning. And that to me is like the best because you can't, I, I just listen to a book usually or to music and it's totally not in the writing universe. And then again, I have kids and I, I'm lucky enough that I'm at home, you know, I work at home and I, I, I have also had to train myself that in the family time, you're just doing family. You know, you're not, I'm not, I'm, so I'm not trying to like sneak away, you know, so weekends I'm generally pretty much hanging out and not, not trying not to think too hard about the work I have to do. And that's a gift. It is a gift. Cause I think you can get obsessive and unproductively obsessive if you don't have those outlets. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Well, I have a couple of close friends from different points of my life to whom I will send some pages sometimes and say, what do you think of this? Does this read? And then I also, I like with this book, which has some legal stuff, I've tried to send it to lawyers I know to like make sure it passes muster. I'm big on experts and having them read passages. My wife will generally get to read stuff, but not until much later in the process because her opinion is so meaningful to me that it's like, 
it's like too much. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like if I, if I get it too early on, it, it, it has too much power. <laughs> yeah. And then I do have an editor, um, Josh, uh, Josh uh, Kendall at Mulholland, who I trust a lot. And so he reads pretty early drafts and we get into it pretty early on. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, well, you just, you have to have the long view. And it's like we were talking about with time before. You have to accept that there is, that the rejection is a part of a longer story. And like, being a novelist is tough only in the sense that like you have to be sort of empathetic and and thin-skinned in the sense that like you're trying to channel the world into yourself and to but at the same time you have to be pretty thick-skinned and hard-hearted because it's going to hurt you know and then even when you publish a book if you're lucky enough to like suddenly the whole world is able to post your performance reviews on amazon.com or on twitter or whatever so you have to be able to be like it's fine i believe in this i believe in myself I'm just going to press on. And it's, it's, it gets easier the older you get, you know, because at this point I, I'm like, well, even if this book isn't, doesn't land the way I want it to, on some level, I, I know that I'm okay at this because I published other books that did land the way I wanted them to. And I have I won a couple of awards and like people are going to read them. So you just, at some point you go, you, you just got to press on. You can't take it to heart too much. And what is your favorite word? I'm going to say the word positive. And I only because... This last year has been hard for me. It's been hard for everybody in a lot of ways. And there's this one song by The Hold Steady, a band that I just love. And actually, like I, said, I mentioned Craig Finn before, he's their songwriter. I'm like, but they just have a song called Stay Positive. And it's just about like, it, the, the chorus of the song is you got to stay positive. And I have that written down and just posted above my desk downstairs. And it's just, it's become meaningful to me. Like, no matter what, you got to stay positive. You have to, have to. And like, I don't know, I'm not a cheesy person in general. I'm pretty, like, I don't get too sentimental, but like, I'm, I'm hearing my wife in my mind laughing at me. I'm very cheesy and sentimental, but like you've got to just stay positive. So that, that right to me right now is the word. Well, thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of our conversation. Thank you so much, Mitzi. It's really been a pleasure. And I'm going to go back and listen to all 304 preceding Bye. episodes. If you like today's show with Ben Winters, author of the novel Golden State, check out my interview with Emily St. John Mandel about her novel Station Eleven. We talked about how the novel is a love letter to the world, multiple points of view, and the question of what survives over time. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Keith O'Brien, No Violet Bulaweo, Jacinda Townsend, Ada Limon, and Soon Wiley. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.